Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet Podcast. Today's guest is Dana Walsh-Sivak, who is a partner at Falcon Rappaport and Berkman. She serves as co-chair of the firm's elder law practice and a member of its litigation and cannabis law practice groups. Today, we're going to talk about that intersection between elder law and cannabis practice and we're going to discuss the way we treat our seniors as full people with the ability sometimes even to make decisions for themselves about what that will look like. <laughs> so welcome, Dana. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about what does elder law actually encompass? That's a loaded question. I think it can really encompass almost anything that an elderly person might be concerned about. The more traditional way we would look at it would be things like estate planning, putting together a legacy for yourself in terms of your property, um, how you want your family to be able to carry on after you've passed away. Um, but increasingly it's more focused on what your life is gonna look like when you're here and you're just a bit older. Uh, I do a lot of long-term care planning. Sometimes I work in guardianship law for people who may have lost capacity and now need somebody else, unfortunately, often the court to step in and help um, appoint somebody to help them make decisions they no longer can for themselves. And I've done a lot of work with nursing homes and assisted living facilities, sometimes helping them to navigate certain issues, um, always to try to focus on helping elderly people have the best quality of life as much opportunity as they can to make their own decisions and to just generally live out their lives the best way that they can and that they choose to, regardless of whether some of the, their limitations may be more present or obvious as they age. I love the quote by Jimmy Carter, which is, I'm gonna butcher it, but it is something like, the best intentions of our children would have us turning into TV watching vegetables. Because I do think there is this assumption that after a certain age, certain people would do better making the decisions for others. And I love the idea that you are promoting independent decision making for as long as that is possible. Absolutely. Let's talk about Let's talk about just for a second that intersection between your expertise of cannabis law and the aging population. How does that play together? In a very interesting way that I don't think I fully understood when I started practicing elder law and this topic came up. Um, it seemed like it was something that was gaining more traction or attention in the older population. You know, in, where I am in New York um, in 2014 was when the first laws were passed um, supporting medicinal cannabis being used legally. And since then, there's been this societal shift that's becoming more, it's becoming more, I guess, acceptable by society to use cannabis both for medical and recreational reasons. So obviously, as now this aging population, some of whom were part of the 
the group in the 60s that really led the, the revolution in um, drugs and, and cannabis, uh, they're now at the age where they're considering going into a residential health care facility, like a nursing home or an assisted living facility. Um, and I started to learn more about how powerful medical cannabis in particular can be in treating a lot of the kinds of conditions that people in the geriatric population suffer from. And at the same time, we have this issue in our country where uh, opioids and other addictive pain medications, for example, are being used so frequently. Um, and this just sort of presented to me another idea of something that could be used in place of opioids. You know, that's part of what brought this to the state of New York in the first place. Um, a great alternative to, you know, more heavy duty narcotics. Mm -hmm. um, and why wouldn't that be something that we're talking about in the senior population, um, given that natural opportunity, I guess, for cannabis to come in and, and solve or help contribute to the resolution of some problems. And I would imagine that this generation, as they're aging, being a member of that generation, <laughs> is more receptive to cannabis than, let's say, people one generation older. I would imagine well, that the receptivity is greater. I think so. And I think, um, you know, people of all generations, you'll have a big wide spectrum of what people are comfortable with. And, you know, you might have very young people that are very traditional in their ways. And, you know, I remember my own great grandmother being a very free spirit who would tell it like it was years before that was, you know, popular for women. Um, but you pointed out something really interesting and important about how our children's decisions could impact, you know, what we are able to do. And I think that that really rings true with cannabis because the people often that are leading to making certain decisions or in influencing the decisions that are made, especially in healthcare facilities are the children. Um, and I think that part of what I've been trying to do is help people to think about whether those decisions are appropriate or whether some of these decisions could still be made by older people, even if there are varying levels of capacity. Um, and that that we should be thinking more about that person's best interests and their wishes and not what maybe their children or grandchildren think would be appropriate. I think too often we put our own feelings and stigma, you know, on how we're deciding another person should live. Absolutely. Parents do it to kids, kids do it to parents. It's the turnabout is fair play in some situations. So, and as, as an elder law attorney, that's one of the challenges is I see, I'm so ingrained, I would say, in what goes on in families, when especially when there's conflict, when there's a guardianship or something like that. But um, even just in estate planning, in the more typical Medicaid planning, the family dynamics really come to the forefront. I mean, I don't know who among us has a family without any kind of drama or, you know, difficulty through the years. And now the power dynamic has shifted. And now you have perhaps a mother or father who is a little bit domineering. And now the child for the first time has to stand on their own and make decisions. And you can see a lot of feelings come out in those moments. Sometimes people lash out. Sometimes it's really important to the child that I understand as the attorney through our conversations, how hard it was for them growing up or how challenging it is for them to be now the caregiver. Um, and a lot of really interesting things happen. You know, if I, I feel like sometimes I'm part social worker when I'm helping these clients and their families navigate these difficult times because a lot of it is psychological. And 
you know, all of those feelings and long kept grudges and, and hurt, you know, comes out sometimes 50 years later, because now is their time to, you know, feel at peace with it. So it really complicates things when we're making now decisions for a person. Um, it's hard sometimes to separate that from your obligation to just do what's in that older person's best interest. And discerning what is in somebody's best interest without the filter of you, what your opinion might be. Absolutely. So what is the Compassionate Act, the Com Compassionate Care Act, and how does that play into this? So the Compassionate Care Act was the first medical marijuana law in New York, and around 2014 is when that was passed. And what's interesting about the history there and why I always incorporate this into you know, when I'm sharing information about medical cannabis in New York is how difficult it was to get there. Even when they first created the law, there was such intense debate about what kinds of conditions would be treated with medical cannabis. At the time, they called them qualifying conditions. And essentially the law said that medical cannabis was acceptable and could be used under very, very strict guidelines. Um, that were designed to avoid having medical cannabis products fall into the regular, you know, street sale of cannabis. And they had all of these very strict protocols about storage, administration of cannabis, um, destruction of unused cannabis, like you would see, you know, with um, painkillers, for instance, in hospice care. And the debate that really stuck out to me was about which conditions they allowed to be on that list of qualifying conditions. I recall there was discussion about glaucoma and that it was almost on the list. And then after great debate, they decided not to include it because they felt there were other things that could treat glaucoma. So it seems that the thought at the time was, where is it really necessary to include medical cannabis where other medications or treatment options may be failing or may not be sufficient. And any condition that didn't fall pretty squarely into that category was left off the list. And the law thankfully did build in this ability to expand the list. So the Department of Health Commissioner had the ability over time to determine that other conditions might be treated well with cannabis. Um, and they did expand that list greatly over the years um, before it became legal for recreational use. But even then, um, there were a lot of hoops that people would have to jump through in order to use cannabis. There were limits on how much you could have at a time. And slowly but surely, that expanded. Initially, um, if you had a substance abuse disorder, that's something that a doctor would have to review and then make a determination as to whether that was something that you know would, would make it so that you couldn't use medical cannabis under the program. And then in time, substance abuse became a qualifying condition because then they realized, wow, the real horror here isn't cannabis, it's opioids. And how do we solve that? And they started to see it as a solution rather than the problem, you know, that somebody with substance abuse could actually be treated with cannabis as a step down, you know, from the more dangerous medicate of not medications, drugs that people were taking. And that's kind of it's, it's funny, even as I say that that's the challenge is when do we see cannabis as a drug and when do we see it as a medicine and how do we kind of get the two together? Um, right. And after the Compassionate Care Act, they did legalize marijuana now under the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act um, very recently. And that changed things even more because now um, all of those concerns I just talked about really have gone away in a, in a significant way. You know, the 
fears about it coming into the street sales is no longer a fear because we have legal street sales that are still not street, legal retail sales, let's say. But there really is not this concern to the same extent about it falling into the wrong hands. Um, and within that law, they did expand the medical um, use of cannabis, even within the, the retail sale option. You know, the, the law is supposed to focus on recreational adult use becoming legal. But with it, they realized that there was this opportunity and a need, I think, to expand the medical program. And that's important because federally, marijuana is still legal. It's a Schedule One substance on the Controlled Substances Act. So we continue to struggle in New York with this, this contradiction between the federal law that says that this is a, a substance that has a high propensity for abuse and doesn't have an accepted medical benefit, you know, that it can't be safely used for a medical condition. And then we have all of the scientific data that states otherwise, and virtually every state in the country has a medical program of some kind. Um, so that's why the medical piece of this is so important, because even where the recreational use might not be allowed under the federal rules, and certainly both are not allowed under the federal rules, there are protections in place for people who are using medical cannabis. So that's kind of a more acceptable or safe way, in particular for healthcare facilities, to allow people to use cannabis in their older years. So let's talk about healthcare facilities, assisted livings. Are they allowing cannabis or is that a strict no smoking zone? So smoking is a, an issue. <laughs> um, and it's funny you say that too, because under the original law, smoking was not an acceptable um, method of administration of cannabis, even if it was for medicinal purposes. They've now added that in the new law as an acceptable use if, or acceptable method of use if that's the best way that a doctor determines that you can use cannabis. But it's a very good question about healthcare facilities. And really the answer is every facility is different and every um, director of a facility has a different opinion on this. And I think that as more demand happens and, you know, every facility needs to fill beds, you know, in order to maintain, you know, keeping the lights on and then for the for-profit facilities, their profit, um, they need to attract people that want to come to that facility. Um, so while ordinarily it's a matter of people that have had good care and sharing that with other people in their lives, um, word of mouth helping, you know, to attract people, I think as this becomes more of an, a known concern to people, that the ability to continue to use medical cannabis will be important and something that admissions departments of facilities will have to take into account. There are some facilities like the Hebrew Home for the Aged in Riverdale in New York. And that has always been a facility um, that I think very highly of that has been sort of at the forefront of a lot of quality of life initiatives, um, scientific advances. And I've gotten to know their um, medical director, Dr. Zachary Pallas. Dr. Pallas started what I believe is the first program um, for a nursing home in New York to support medical cannabis use. And Dr. Pallas is a registered certified practitioner in New York, which means that he's somebody who can recommend or, or you know, a certification for a resident or patient through the New York State Medical Marijuana Program. And he oversees the treatment in conjunction with um, every other part of, you know, the medical monitoring that would ordinarily go on, just like any other medication you take. You wanna make sure that it's not contraindicated, that there's not something about the person's condition that would make that a poor choice. So Dr. Pallas um, 
basically has identified patients and conditions that he thinks could be well treated with cannabis. And in the patient population that he's been working with, this started several years ago, he has reported phenomenal results, especially with things like seizure disorders. Um, he yes. said that the number of seizures he's seen in his geriatric patients has gone way down. Things like cancer um, or reduced appetite. You know, a lot of older folks have a hard time eating and cannabis can help increase appetite. And that can be very important and, and you know crucial in helping somebody to regain strength and recover from some conditions. So there's a lot of things that, you know, he has seen as, as helpful there. Some facilities are scared um, to take this on because of the federal illegality. And I think really what it comes down to is they don't fully understand what it means to be compliant with the federal laws, um, because there are ways that you can be compliant. They're mostly concerned, I think, about jeopardizing Medicare, Medicaid dollars that they rely upon because so many people come into facilities with Medicaid in particular. So it's a it's a an understandable concern. I, I get it, but what I have been trying to do in my practice is to go around to every conference group facility that I can that's willing to listen to talk about why I think this is important and how it can be good, great for their residents to have this option. You know, nobody's forcing them, but having it available is really a great thing. And the challenge that I have found in facilities like the Hebrew home, which Dr. Pallas would tell you himself, is that uh, because of the federal illegality of cannabis, that they're not yet recognizing this as a real medicine. What does it cost out of pocket? What he has said is that most of his patients would have to pay around 200 to $250 a month um, to get the cannabis supply. And the problem there is if you're on Medicaid, you're allowed to keep a little bit of your income each month, but only $50 a month. So that may cover things like the beauty parlor or, you know, a little shopping trip, sundries, but not cannabis. And that, you know, you have to then have somebody supporting you, um, giving that to you on a monthly basis. And the sad thing is he said that at the time we spoke, and this was a few years back when we were lecturing on this together, there are around eight to 10 patients that he had been monitoring, supporting and having them in the program doing very, very well. And that there were so many other patients he thought would be a great candidate for medical cannabis and that they simply couldn't afford it. And he was you know, sharing how, how sad he was to hear that or to know that and to know that there was a better way, that there could be a benefit there and it just wasn't happening. Is there a good lobby in, in Congress right now to, to get the federal law changed? I believe there is. And I think that that serves both the recreational cannabis, you, you know, industry as well as medicinal cannabis. And I think that some in the medical cannabis industry feel like the focus on recreational cannabis can detract from you know, what they're trying to do, but there are groups like Americans for Safe Access and other groups that are focused solely or primarily on the medical cannabis. Um, so there is definitely a movement um, and the administration has signaled that they understand that this is not really an appropriate classification anymore. Um, the president recently came out and said that he's he wants them, you know, the attorney general to look at this and determine whether the schedule one designation makes sense. We all basically know that it doesn't, but what do you do with it? You know, everything has been slow to move forward. So what they need to do is they need to reassess it and figure out based on today's science, is this a schedule one substance or is it a different schedule or should it be descheduled altogether? 
And, you know, we've been following this. I, I'm part of our firm's cannabis team as well. Um, and we're following that as much as we are all of the other aspects of the cannabis business because it's very important and it will just change so much about the way that cannabis is treated. Um, it would, again, open the floodgates for people who could benefit from this medicinally. And now that there's a thriving market in so many states, it would be a great option for the economy, you know, to have this more mainstream. I appreciate that perspective. Moving on from drugs, let's talk about <laughs> sex and rock and roll. So <laughs> what? let's talk about sex and our aging seniors. Okay. We like to think that people of a certain age stop having sex. We don't like to think about that as young people. Right. They no longer have sex. What happens when somebody goes into an assisted living or a nursing home and are a sexually active human? Well, that's the truth is we may think that they stop, but they don't. And, you know, often that think about what that is. I mean, we think about sex as something illicit or, or you know, taboo, but these are adults. And I think this goes back to what I was saying about the changing dynamics of just because a person now is older and can't do certain things that they once could do, that doesn't mean that the power dynamic shifts so greatly that now they're to be treated as children. And, you know, when I started thinking about this a while back, I even had to think about my own mindset and thinking about, you know, sex as something that's dangerous for somebody that, let's say, doesn't have capacity in a facility. And you picture, you know, a, a little old lady in the nursing home and being victimized. But more frequently, what it is, is a married couple or somebody who has a legitimate romantic relationship that either continued in the facility or people form relationships in the facilities as well. Um, you know, after their spouse or partner dies and now they're in a facility, their life goes on. And I think that this is just something interesting to think about from the perspective of, you know, what rights do we necessarily need to give up and do we once we become older? Um, and what does sex provide, you know? Um, it can provide, you know, a closer level of companionship and joy. And some of these people are hanging out in the assisted living or the nursing home all day long. They've got more time than anybody to engage in things that they've been doing since some of them were teenagers. So That's right. I've also seen um, some data that shows that, you know, people with Alzheimer's, for instance, they might become more sexually provocative in their behavior. You know, that's just something that sometimes happens. You become less inhibited. Um, now, there are circumstances where if a woman, for instance, has Alzheimer's disease and acts out sexually toward her own spouse, it could be considered rape. Um, and is that something that we ever want? Or do we want a woman or a man who is desiring a sexual relationship with their long-term partner, for instance, to now be rejected? I mean, how does that feel to somebody who has Alzheimer's disease and they don't even understand why it's happening, you know? So that's a tough thing. And I think that what it goes back to is just our frame of, of how we're thinking about it and how independent we believe people can still be, again, at these different levels of capacity. And Hebrew Home, again, um, it's funny because they did a program called, I think it was Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And they talked about you know these types of things. And they have a program where it's called like G-Date, or I believe Grandparent Date. and their social work staff supports and monitors dating in the facility. And, you know, there are people with varying levels of capacity that do that. And 
they come up with ways to try to gauge whether they are consenting and understanding of, of what sex is and if they're enjoying it or not. And it's a little bit delicate. And I guess some facilities would probably be concerned about the liability. And I think that there's a balancing act there. And I understand both perspectives, but I hope that there's more of a focus on treating people as individuals with dignity and allowing them to enjoy their lives if that's what they want to do. And gender bias. I mean, when we think about the little old lady and the bachelor all his life with lots of girlfriends, like which one do we worry about? Which one do we judge? Mm -hmm. You know, and should we be doing any of that? No. So Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing to think about. But at the same time, you have to protect people. It is rape in some circumstances. And the police would not be able to necessarily use discretion if they come and they find that somebody had sex and didn't have capacity legally, they would have to arrest that person. Um, And that can be uncomfortable. And often when these things have happened, it's been a second marriage or a relationship where the child finds out that sexual activity is happening, doesn't want mom to be having sex. Um, Sometimes the men that are involved are of a different generation and they think that, you know, they shouldn't have to answer to anybody. This is their wife, this is their partner. And now you have really a battle of everybody else deciding what this person should have. And I have seen criminal cases, particularly in uh, in Iowa. There was one that really stuck out in my mind um, where a legislator was uh, charged with rape because his daughter or her daughters knew that, you know, she was having sex with her husband in the facility. They told her him not to, that she didn't have capacity. And According to them, you know, they were still doing it. And after the woman died, he was arrested for, and charged with, I believe it was rape. And ultimately he was not convicted because of a proof factor. You know, he the, there was a roommate who was uncomfortable with it and heard some kind of noise that she thought was sex, but they couldn't prove it, that it was actually sex. And he said it wasn't. And what if he said, yes, I was having sex with my wife and he was in jail for rape. So that again is a battle of control over a person. That, and and our most personal elements of control, right? right. That's a, a real that, intrusion yeah. on our real person. Yeah, And that's why it's hard because at the same time, it is, like you said, very personal, very private, and kind of sacred. And part of me doesn't like the idea that a person that doesn't have capacity would be in a position where they would make a decision like that. Um, but it's a tough thing to think about that you kind of have to make a judgment call when you have capacity, when you're younger or before you have, you know, some kind of a cognitive impairment set in of how you would want yourself to be treated. You know, what, what would be important to you? And I think that's, again, the difficulty of placing our own thoughts, beliefs, and feelings on mm-hmm. how other people would act. And promoting agency. I mean, I think what your message really is, is promoting agency in adulthood, regardless of age, and providing agency to the level of capacity. And that is where things get tricky. I think that beyond capacity is really where it gets tricky because we default to a position of protection. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we protect to such a degree that it can be, you know, counterproductive. It can cause worse harm sometimes by depriving somebody of the ability to enjoy themselves because we're placing our own values on which one of those things is more important. So, you know, it's almost like the helicopter parent, you know, is now the child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how, how much freedom do you give a person to simply live their life? Um, or are you afraid that something bad could happen? And, and again, that's a very tough call. 
And sometimes the safer approach is to just say, well, I don't know if she would be making or he would be making a, a sound decision about sex. So it's better to avoid that harm. But what if the harm then is loneliness and, you know, the loss of something that maybe they crave very, very badly. And for a lot of young people, that's a very important part of life and their relationships. I don't really believe that it just goes away as you get older. I guess I'll find I out <laughs> one day. <laughs> so I appreciate this candid and intimate conversation that we've had today. Thank you for joining me. Um, oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And for our listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast, please like us on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.